While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And maybe you haven't been meaning to read them, but we've been meaning to read them. I always think about that after I say that each week. It's a pretty good tag, but sometimes I think it might be a bit of a misnomer. It's like the royal you. It refers to all of <laughs> is us. Is that a thing? Is the royal I don't... you a thing? <laughs> I also... now. I'm also not sure if I used the word misnomer correctly back there. But how did you use it? Lay it on me again. I I used it in reference to an entire phrase. I don't think you can oh, do no, that. Oh, no, I don't. No, I think I think you just said it bad. I don't think it's a misnomer. I, I, think I, just, it's just, I just talked bad. What you I did. misspoke, I think, oh. is what maybe what you wanted. All right. Well, yeah. See, this we're is all. Be, uh, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, were you going to make that segue for me? Because I was going to make that segue. Okay. It's we'll like we both segue. tried to walk through a doorway at the same time, and now Man, neither of us to, know who who's going. I need to know. I need to know who the inventor of the segue was. So when someone is trying to make a segue, I can be like, "Oh, nice segue, guy who invented the segue." Don't you think that would be a funny joke? I guess it would. Didn't he fall off a cliff? He did, but it's it's been a while. It's been okay. So <laughs> I think it's time to get the laughter back. <laughs> okay. Okay. Praise him for his invention, not for his well, fault. Well, let's let's not say anything we can't take back. <laughs> okay. All right. If we learned anything from the last episode, let's not say things we can't take back the, about people. The segue is the Bluetooth headset of conveyances. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what that means. It just means anybody who uses a segue is kind of a tool. It calls kind of. undue attention to someone for a pretty normal act. I guess, or just I feel what like is that giant who, bug in your ear. Oh, you're just talking to your mom. That's what that. Yeah. That's what a Bluetooth is. Everybody I've ever seen on a segue, it seems to be like, oh look, I'm on a segue. It's not something you can do casually, like riding a bike or something. Okay. Now, have you ever been on a segue? No, I have not. They're really fun. <laughs> I'm just going to say that right now. <laughs> now, I did not ride one while I was in a tour, like in one of those like Segway tours. Right. Well, under what circumstances then? Did someone, you... someone who works or worked at the time for a Segway tour company brought one to a birthday party because the birthday party was Arrested Development themed. Okay, that makes sense. So that's the we, only other context where it's appropriate where to have a segue. It's appropriate to have a segue. Tours and Arrested Development references. Yeah. So back when we were making segues, we were using words correctly or incorrectly. And I was going to segue into what book we read this week or what book I read this week. What book did you read this week? I read The Elements of Style by William Strunk Jr. and E.B. White. Now, when you originally told me that you wanted to read the elements of style for this podcast, yeah. I was like, okay, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly so why, how you were. 
Why did you why did you read this? Well, first of all, it fits the criteria that was the inspiration for this show. It was literally on my bookshelf. The copy okay. I have is falling apart. Like I'm going to show it to you on video right now. It is just a bunch of pages. It's a bunch of okay. pages that I've basically slammed together with post-it notes so that That's it won't fall. That's something that apart. I really that I kind of like about paperbacks is you can you can tell usually like when the last time you're going to be able to read it is. Oh, it's just oh it, this because as you go through like you turn the pages and they just come out of the binding was, half the time. And and just to let you know how dedicated I am to this podcast, I read this book in public places multiple times. Oh, and you should tell that story. I will, <laughs> I will tell that story in just a second. Uh, and I was it was disintegrating in my hands. The book was. <laughs> Like it was terrible. Um, Where but, did you get it from? That like you've never read it, and yet it is about ready to to fall apart into dust. I'm going to give you one guess as to where I got this book from. Okay. Do I? Oh, I guess. <laughs> Do you not know how to guess? I didn't know if it was like a rhetorical guess. No, I'm going to give um, you one guess. Um, the college bookstore. And no, my high school. I got it from. Oh, did you steal it from your high school? Of course again? I did. What, we should do a podcast the, about the books that you stole from. <laughs> That's what this podcast is. It's just not called that, Andrew. <laughs> My no, the book, this copy of it, the Elements of Style, in the like the little stamp on the first page where you're supposed to write your name, has people dating back to the 1970s. Oh goodness! So this book is old. Um. And I guess I got this it. Is, this is like the end of the line for it. Like, yeah. This is the last time anybody will ever read this book. Well, and it's old enough that it's not the copy that you see that's probably on our website right now um, when you buy the book no, now. No, I mean, if it was in the 70s, I'm sure they've done other like subsequent editions yeah. of it. So this one is like, it's a little blue book. And the, the front cover has this really ridiculous quote from the New York Times. It says, buy it, study it, enjoy it. It's as timeless as a book can be in our age of volubility. What? Who drops the word volubility on a cover quote? I think the 1970 era New York Times. I think that's the answer to your question. Millen Publishing from 1970s decided to drop that. Um, anyway, <laughs> so I decided to read it because to pull the, the two two reasons. One is inside baseball. One is we record these things at a certain schedule, and I wanted to make sure I had something to read in a short amount of time. Because uh, it's not a very big book. Two is, it is, because we're, you know, we're reading all these books, and, I, and you are a writer also by trade, so I thought that a book about writing itself might be germane to the podcast. And it is a book that uh, I probably should have read when it was given to me. It was it was never assigned. It was just a, like, here's a book you might want to read, dummo. And uh, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't read it. Um, and that's why you write so bad. That's I write the worst because I write sentences like I just spoke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think I'm an okay writer despite having never read this book. So maybe I'll well, get a little bit better. I don't know. Yeah, you go for, from okay to great if you read the elements of style. I, uh, may, oh, maybe. <laughs> do you have any preconceptions of the elements of style? I do not. Yeah, like my, I'm I'm a writer because people pay me money to write. Uh huh. But I don't have a lot of professional training. I never went to journalism school. Okay. Um, when I did the paper in um, 
in college, we used another style guide, not not strong and white. So like I don't have a lot of familiarity going into this, but I think one of the reasons you read it is because you wanted to read out things from the book and have me like have strong opinions about them. That is so exactly I'm hoping I, I'm what hoping I, want. I don't let you down. Okay. Now you realize that uh, maybe I've also never read a style guide. <laughs> so like I remember being taught MLA things, etc. But this is not like this is just a bunch of dudes' thoughts, right? Like how are style guides normally written in your experience? Well, the the MLA book that we used at the school paper was just like it was alphabetically arranged and it was about like proper use of dashes or like when you spell out a number versus just yeah, using yeah. a numeral. But it was it was and, organized um, more like a reference Book. yeah okay it was a reference manual it wasn't just like a like a stream of consciousness that's kind of what this feels of like tips about like writing <laughs> well this is not so much tips it's kind of dogma <laughs> um <laughs> so <laughs> it was it was written in 1919 that that's a point of discussion i think um okay. by william strunk jr who was a professor at cornell and he self-published the book for the university uh, for in-house use, and then in a co- within like four or five years, uh, they did a wider uh, edition that then got reviewed in the New York Times and it became a New York Times bestseller. Um, and then in the fifties, because he was a former student, I suppose they tapped E.B. White, who wrote Charlotte's Web. Um, right? Did I make that up? Yeah. Okay. Some pig. Great. <laughs> yeah, that's in the style guide. No, you were terrific about making that reference. What? About the Charlotte's Web reference. You were also very humble. What do you... S- These are the words that Charlotte wrote on the web. Have you not read Charlotte's Web? Because if you haven't, I have an assignment for your next episode. I've only ever seen the movie. Oh, man. You need to read Charlotte's Web. All right, great. Even if we even if we edit this exchange out of the podcast... Uh, no, I we'll think... keep it in. It's fine. Okay. People, need... people enjoy it when we're that like should normal be... humans. That should be your next episode. Okay, great. I'm just saying. You're just saying. So (laughs) on Cornell's campus, this book in its original incarnation was referred to like colloquially, colloquially, as, (laughs) (laughs) moving on, as the little book. Uh, And it's it's a wee book. It's a wee volume. Um, But it does, it it just seems to paint this picture. There's this great intro from... E.B. White, that kind of paints a picture of Strunk as this cantankerous, like, really concise man. Like, on, like, the third page, he talks about how often Strunk would drive home one of his rules, which was omit needless words. And it's just, like, a three-word rule that he had, right? Mm -hmm. But he even says, like, he would make up for his, like, what's the op... His brevity. There you go. I almost asked you what the opposite of verbosity was that's a terrible question <laughs> he would brevity's make, good he would make up for his brevity by just repeating every sentence three times so he's it's like when he delivered his oration on brevity to the class he leaned forward over his desk grasped his coat lapels in his hands and in a husky conspiratorial voice said rule 13 omit needless words omit needless words omit needless words and i think if i had a college professor like that i would be terrified I think I did have a college <laughs> professor like that. 
Um, Do you care to name names, John Proctor? I'm good. Okay. <laughs> John Proctor. <laughs> Callbacks. Callbacks. Um, one, I have one question for you before we dive in. Okay. Um, did Strunk know, like, was he still alive by the time that E.B. White was making these additions? Holy crap, I don't know. Because that's what I want to know is, like, Strunk and White kind of rolls off the tongue and it kind of is, like... Even if you never read the book, you've maybe heard of it, and that's like the name that it's it's usually known by. No, William Strong passed away in 1946. Oh, so E.B. White is kind of making these. He's making these additions, and it's called Strunk and White, and their names are inextricably linked. Yes, but Strunk did not know about it or give his consent. Yeah, I don't. They don't. You know, in the guide, they don't really go into the backstory of the two of them. Okay, As maybe like, that's not maybe that's not important. But. Well, it it will become important. Uh, White's additions will become important later in the book because the book is five chapters. Okay, and the fifth one is, it's not, I don't know if it's called an introduction to style or thought, an approach to style, uh, with the subheader with a list of reminders, and that is all E.B. White. That so did White delete stuff that Strunk did, or did he only add things? He did delete a chapter on misspellings. Okay. Because um, he felt that it was not useful. A lot of it was, you know, uh, debating archaic spellings and stuff like that. Um, one of the main things about this book in general is the tension between uh, prescriptivist and descriptivist linguistics which is, you know, this is what language is because the dictionary says it is, and this is what language is because that's how people use it. Sure. Um, so I think Strunk and White has a reputation, at least for me anyway, before I finally read it, and it certainly lives up to this reputation, of being extremely prescript- prescriptivist. Like, this is what words are. Don't use them the wrong way. This is what they mean. No, don't change it. Because that's confusing. Um, yeah, I think I fall more or less into that camp. Like, I, I fight against, especially writing about technology as I do. Like, we often come up with words mm. to use as, like, shorthand. And a lot of the time, those words are awful. Like, um, a large smartphone that is maybe in between a traditional smartphone and a tablet in size is often called a phablet. I hate that word. P-H-A-B-L-E-T, and people uh, call the remote for the Wii game console a Wiimote. That makes more sense than Fablet does. No, I no, I just want to, I hate both of them. I wish we never used either of them. Are there, are I, I there, don't want language to change past <laughs> what I know about it. Are there people in your line of work who also don't like Fablet? Are you the only yes. one? Okay, all right, just making sure. I'm not, not the s- only one, but like even among the people who hate it, it, it's like admittedly a useful shorthand for that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So on occasion we will use it, but it doesn't mean I have to like it. Okay. Which I think is very prescriptivist. <laughs> yes. That's why I bring it up. It is. Um, and I'm interested in that kind of stuff. There's a great essay by David Foster Wallace in his book. <laughs> just throw a name out there. Yeah. Just, yeah. No, I had to remember who, no, I didn't make it up. It's probably him. No, because his mother, I think, had something to do with dictionary editing, or she was an English teacher or something like that. Um, so he's he's written a couple articles on grammar that 
as a huge nerd, I find incredibly interesting. Um, so I've, I'm already like kind of keyed into this idea of whether or not you change language and stuff, stuff like that. But anyway, so the way this book is structured, it doesn't being a mix of one dude's dogma of language and proper style guide. It just dives right in like just chapter one elementary rules of usage, bold face. Number one, form the possessive singular of nouns by adding apostrophe S and he just goes into it. Um, which I think is people do people still do that? Is that a, a rule that people follow? Like people Charles's do dog, would you put Charles with an apostrophe and then another S? I usually if it ends in like an S or a Z or something, I usually just put an apostrophe at the end of the word. Uh oh. So I'm already in put, trouble. Okay, so let's just count the number of times throughout this podcast that Andrew gets in trouble now, with Mr. I don't, Strunk. In my defense. Okay. In my defense, I think that my sin is lesser than the people who put an apostrophe in something that they merely intend to be plural. Oh, okay. So if they're trying to say pizzas and they mean plural pizzas, (laughs) but they put an apostrophe in there, that is much worse. That is really bad. And you see it on like professionally printed signs a lot. And you wonder if the printer like... If he like knew and just like did it oh, anyway, man. or oh, like... I want to meet that printer. I want to meet the printer who really doesn't care whether or not your sign is correct. He just wants you to have to live with your mistakes. Do you bet there are birthday cake guys that have the same thing? They're like, "What? Well, you spelled Philip with a Z, so whatever. Happy birthday, fills up." <laughs> God, that would be the best. No, just give the people what they want, and if they look like idiots, that's not your. Well, problem. and then all you just know that he goes and reads all the grammatically incorrect, misspelled Yelp reviews at the end of the day. Uh, this guy messed up my cake. Well, you only spelled mess with one s, so shut if, up. Yeah, if Strunk had not already been dead, like, can you imagine if you if you woke him up in now times, like how <laughs> just how awful it would be for him? Like, if you showed him Twitter, if you showed him a cell phone. You just showed him a text message, he would have a stroke. Yeah, like, uh, I think AIM would be like his kryptonite if he were a superhero. Oh, man. I would love to write code for a chatbot of Strunk. And if you use incorrect grammar in your chats, he would get all mad at you. Okay, smarter child. Let, well, let's get back to the right, podcast. Let's get, back to, let's get back to your previously scheduled podcast. Um, <laughs> so on page two, this this is one that I think you and I have different feelings about, Andrew. And I don't really know why I have my feelings. Page two, he tackles the Oxford comma. Okay. And he's in support of the Oxford comma. I also enjoy the Oxford comma. Really? You, you need it in there. I thought that you were against the Oxford comma. It's... I've kind of the Oxford comma is something where a lot of the time you just come to believe whatever the place you currently work at believes. <laughs> Toe the line, as it were. So at the Collegian, <laughs> at the college newspaper, we got rid of it. Okay, there was never that third comma did not enter into discussion, and at at ours, where I work now, we are very much in favor of it. And you always see. That um that like graphic about like JFK and Abraham Lincoln and strippers or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. About like why you need the Oxford comma all the time. But really, I mean, 
I use it and I think it's great and I have no problem with it at all. But like the number of times when it's really, truly confusing is, is like pretty rare, I would say. That's true. That's true. Most people know what's up. Most people get it. So you, you do or you don't like the Oxford I comma? do like the Oxford comma. Okay, so we agree. That's boring. Uh, I, did not, I did not know that we would agree. Um, but there you go. So then in chapter two, let's, I'm going to skip ahead because we've been chatting for a little bit now. Um, in chapter two, he talks about elementary principles of composition. And he spends... Then rule number nine is make the paragraph the unit of composition. And then he like he spends a whole period of time talking about paragraphs. I don't think I've ever thought about paragraphs that deeply. Do you know what I mean? Like, we all just agreed that that's how writing works. Um, I guess when I'm when I'm writing, you know, in kind of a web layout where you don't really need to worry about how much space stuff takes up. Yeah, yeah. You can just make as many paragraphs as as you can make. So even even if my paragraphs are not like thematically, like if it's not like topic sentence and then a couple other sentences and then like conclusion sentence or however you're like taught that a paragraph goes together, I just kind of break up thoughts as it feels natural and like. And like, even if a paragraph is getting too long or something, even if it's all kind of one thought, I will break it up just to make it easier to read. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, the difference between, so is is he talking about that or is he talking about like how a paragraph is actually composed? It's a little bit of a mix. He's talking about, you know, yes, you should, you use them whenever you are changing topics or you're changing, you know, ideas in between a larger argument you're laying out some sort of thesis statement, et cetera, et cetera. But he's also, you know, cognizant of the fact that maybe you want a real short, short paragraph in between a couple of big ones to like break up the structure and stuff like that. Oh, that's um, interesting. It's just interesting. As I was reading that, I was just like, how did we all agree that that's how writing worked? Like, what is <laughs> that's just surprising to me. Um, and then the very next, uh, very next rule is use the active voice, which I remember to be a big one. Is that something that you are still dealing with in as a writer, Andrew? I rarely think about it very much when I'm actually writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if it's... I guess I'd have to go through and read my stuff to see if I use the passive voice a lot. But like, the passive voice is it's very easy to use if you're trying to like leave yourself wiggle room or leave another party wiggle room. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the time I'm writing about something that, you know, a company or a person or a piece of software or something like does or does not do. Yes. Um, so I, I, I don't think I have too much problem with the passive voice. Like it's pretty easy to write in the active voice, but I I've read some articles that are pretty interesting just to, just kind of rebelling against this never use the passive mm-hmm. voice thing and um just saying it's an archaic thing and people think it's a thing because Strunk said it was and nobody's really <laughs> thought to question it yeah. since then. Yeah, that's true. Uh, he does take time to to point out, you know, he says this rule does not of course mean that the writer should entirely discard the passive voice, which is frequently convenient and sometimes necessary. And he provides an example. The dramatists of the Restoration are little esteemed today versus modern readers have little esteem for the dramatists of the Restoration. Mm-hmm. And his, his follow-up to that is like, 
there's that's a good way to start a discussion that you're you know to start an argument that you're writing and it actually depends on what your paper or article is about that would dictate which version of that sentence you use you know because you either want the object of the sentence to be part of the larger argument or you want you know the subject of the sentence is your paper about dramatists or is your paper about audiences like that kind of right thing. yeah and then the in the active version the modern readers would seem to be the 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 um the subject yeah. Than, yeah 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 so just you know, of, the, of the paper i mean yeah there's there's a little little asides throughout the book that i think that he is aware that his rules are bendable but he of course would love you to follow them first and break them later um yeah, and that's that's the thing with so many rules is like they're they're there for for you to learn and for you to follow, but once you are really familiar with them and once you get good at something, like you can learn when it's good to break the rules. You know, and I think that's more broadly applicable to a lot of things. Like the rules are there as as guidelines and then once you are aware of how things actually work like once you divine the reasons why the rules are the way they are, you yes. can start to bend them a little. Yeah. Bit. Well, and his his thing is clarity above all else. So it is this kind of tacit understanding that whenever you are writing, someone else has to read it. And if you're not doing a good job by that person, then you're then you're writing poorly. Yeah. Um, something that I kind of responded to, in just in terms for some of the work that I do, also. He has a rule that's put statements in positive form. Be, I want to get your thoughts on this in just a second. Because he says, like, don't just go around writing someone is not honest. Write that they are dishonest. Don't write that they did not remember. Write that they forgot. Um, and, uh, you know, one reason is that it just gives you stronger verbs, which is something mm-hmm. that in theater as a director and a teacher is very useful for me because when I'm telling actors what to do or asking actors to think about what characters are doing, it's a lot better for them to not think about what they're <laughs> it's a lot better for them to not think about what their characters are not oh god i'm in the woods andrew help me <laughs> oh no i got stuck I in a know, loop i don't know where you are my brain's broken map. oh god it's easier for them to think of positive verbs that they can do rather than things that they are not doing if that makes sense yeah like it's easier to to tell a young actor, I bet, to, like, act nervous than to act not brave. Yeah. Is that, is that <laughs> exactly. Yes. Let's go with that. Sure. Sure. Um, though this and that's a, that's a thing in, in news, too, is it's, like, nobody wants to read about something not happening. <laughs> New iPhone not announced. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that... is When you're doing criticism, though, is that something that you struggle with because you you might be talking about the negatives of something that you still have to find a way to express you know actively or whatever i think it's a bigger deal in like the further out you zoom from the story the more important it is okay at least in in my like if like writing a headline is is an art that's almost distinct from actually writing a concise idea because you have to not only convey something concise but you're often working within like a character limit you have to like draw the reader in without being like without like oversimplifying or being um being like extremist about anything Mm -hmm. 
But then once I'm actually, you know, once I'm actually reviewing something, of course, like saying, you know, this, this laptop does not do this thing that like most other laptops do or that like this laptop that we like better. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, uh, yeah. Like once, once you're actually, once you're actually evaluating something, you know, saying what it does and doesn't do is pretty, is pretty important. Pretty standard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and another, another kind of running theme of this book and we'll get more to it in the white, the EB white chapter is that, he a lot of times will put in a caveat and say that something is much more pertinent in formal writing. Like he knows, he seems to be delineating between creative and formal writing whenever possible. Sure. Because uh, the idea being that in creative writing, you get a little more leeway in, in rule breaking because um, it might help you stylistically. Yeah. Uh, one of the next, the next uh, rule that, is in the book. I'm going to end that sentence. <laughs> Good job. Um, Good job, man. Is the uh, aforementioned omit needless words. And I only wanted to bring it up because there's like a really awkward example that he uses. And this struck me funny. How about that? This, this week struck me funny. It strunk you funny? It strunk me. Oh, gross. <laughs> strunk me funny. That's my new comedy club. Um, he talks about. Many expressions in common use violate the principle of omit needless words. Like a lot of times people say the question as to whether when you could just say whether. Or there is no doubt but that when you could just say no doubt or doubtless. Uh, and the one that he uses also next is used for fuel purposes. And he says you should just say used for fuel. Who has ever in the world said used for fuel purposes? It must have been like in a time when well cuz this was written like what 1919 yeah, you said yeah. so maybe like people were still getting used to the idea of machines that were fueled by other things i guess so it still struck me as really awkward struck me real funny <laughs> it was really awkward <laughs> uh and when- but yeah like like a lot of the times you can follow these rules and then like break one on purpose to draw attention to the particular thing yes. that you're trying yes. to say. Like if you all of a sudden in a very terse essay start getting, you know, start stringing together a bunch of clauses or stringing together a bunch of adjectives, like you're obviously going to call attention to it as long as you can do it within your consistent voice, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the next rule that I wanted to talk about is keep related words together. And it has to do with like, making sure that all of your modifiers go to the right object and stuff like that. And there's this, is there, is there anything in there about like, um, like, uh, agreement between like the number of, of things that the, like a plural noun and a plural verb or like stuff like that. Or does he break grammar down that like grand? I don't, does he get that granular? Sometimes he does. I don't remember exactly where he talks about, um, certain nouns needing certain verbs there are later in the usage guide for a bunch of words which we're going to go through which is just i know it's just riveting in a few minutes (laughs) um there's a couple words where he points out that like this word should actually takes a plural verb even though it doesn't sound like one so he does he does address that um but i want to read this one because he says keep related words together the position of the words in a sentence is the principal means of showing their relationship Confusion and ambiguity result when words are badly placed. 
And here's this awesome example that he has. New York's first commercial human sperm bank opened Friday with semen samples from 18 men frozen in a stainless steel tank. (laughs) And then later down on the page, he goes, In the left-hand version of the third example, the reader's heart goes out to those 18 poor fellows frozen in a steel tank. Which is, I just think that's really great. When it's, yeah, that's my favorite kind of mistake is when when something can be misinterpreted yeah, that way. Yeah, it's it's excellent. Um, and he does do that occasionally. You know, he doesn't. Uh, he's not always that funny, but it's kind of wonderful when he is. Um, great. And I think now I just want to move into the the usage guide. A few matters of form. This is the the white chapter. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. This is still strong. Okay. Oh no, here's one. It's about hyphens and there's a there's a part where he talks about hyphens um cuz he's talking about words like uh bedchamber and wildlife and bellboy that you know maybe initially when they were brought up were two separate words and then they get hyphened and then they just become a compound word, you know. Um and he has a sentence here that says the steady evolution of the language seems to favor union. Two words eventually become one, usually after period of hyphenation. It's just a weird observation to make. Um, but it, I don't think he's wrong. No. But. And it also shows that, like, even as this book has this reputation of strict prescriptivism um, to the point of some anachronistic language, uh, <laughs> he does seem to recognize that there is evolution in language. You know, as, as steadfast as he is, he, he knows that other people are changing their usage. Yeah, I mean, what's, what's impressive about this book is that he has... Um and who knows, maybe maybe by observing this stuff about the language, he's kind of uh, formalized a lot of it and made it stick for longer than it naturally would I have. I think he has, yeah. <laughs> but um, like so many of the rules that he's come up with, are we, like we can still talk about them today because they're still things. Yes. Um, he follows up that hyphen section with a note about two newspapers in Chattanooga, the news and the free press. And he talks about how they introduced a hyphen when the papers merged and the paper became the Chattanooga News Free Press. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just excellent. Um, Oh, there's a quote in here where he talks about, he's talking about quotations. Um, He's just like talking about how you use quotation marks and all sorts of stuff. And there's a a line from Mark Twain that I actually wanted to share on the podcast because it seems to embody the spirit of this podcast, Andrew. Okay. Mark Twain says, a classic is something that everybody wants to have read and nobody wants to read. Yeah, that's. I think that's applicable. That's like half of these books. Actually, no, we've liked more than half of these books. That's like the whole Western canon. That is the much. entirety of Western literature. Um, all right, great. So now, now we are properly in the misused words section. Um and there's some of them are just weird, and some of them I think bear discussion. Uh, I like that he the first one he does is aggravate versus irritate. Andrew, can you okay. tell me the difference between aggravate and irritate? To aggravate something is to like make it worse. Yes, I think, and to irritate is just to 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 be irritating. I don't know. I don't want to use the word to define the word, but I think 
irritating like you can you can annoy somebody without making them more annoyed but to aggravate like you actively make their situation worse than it is yes you can't aggravate something that isn't already bad in the first place yeah, he says right. the first means to add to um when talking about vexing matters or conditions yeah i didn't know there was going to be a quiz i would have studied it no it's, it's okay <laughs> uh one <laughs> this one's this is this isn't a quiz um there's a clever. He puts clever down. I was like, I was reading this. And I was like, what are we? What are we talking about? The word clever for? And he goes, note that the word means one thing when applied to men, another when applied to horses. A clever horse. What is a clever horse? A clever horse is a good-natured one, not an ingenious one. Why? I don't know. Is that still a thing? I don't know. But that's weird because that horse that could count was called Clever Hans. And I thought that that was because he was actually clever, not because he was good-natured. <laughs> he was so good-natured that they could teach him to count. He was that's just so obviously. pleasant. He was just so pleasant. He was willing to learn how to count. Ooh, that's weird. Um, here's a word that you might use a little uh, different, use often. Blah, blah, blah. That. The word data or data, Andrew, Okay. does that take a plural or singular verb? Um, it takes a the data word. I think it's a singular verb. Is that wrong? That's, that right? that's not what Strunk says, but that's what I say. Yeah. The data is misleading versus the data, these data are misleading. That is what <laughs> Strunk says. That sounds awful. Yeah, I would say this data is misleading. Hey, Nate Silver, your data is your data are big. Your data are bad. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that that's how you can use that. Um, you're wrong. You're wrong, old man. You're wrong, old dude. Do you know the difference between comprise or what is what does comprise mean, Andrew? Is that what's the what's the what what's the word I'm comparing it to? No, you're not comparing it to anything. What does comprise mean? Oh, to to comprise something is to like to like make it up like some like something is comprised of several smaller parts. Yes, uh, yeah. but those smaller parts do not comprise that thing. The thing he he's saying liter- it literally means embrace. So a zoo okay. comprises reptiles and birds. And okay, yeah, giraffes. I've been guilty of misusing that one. But animals do not comprise a zoo. I have definitely used that that badly. Square is a rectangle. A rectangle is not a square. Um, great. What's the next one? Oh, here's <laughs> he totally called me out, Andrew. Imply and infer. You are the worst person I've ever met at imply and infer. I am really bad at it. I'm really bad. I don't understand. Like I get it. I don't. I mean, like I get the difference between the two, and so it's unfathomable to me that you couldn't. That you can't figure it out. I think I know, and I know what both of them mean. I just mess it up all the time. <laughs> I think I just like the word infer more, so I just want to use it. And then, I don't know. I don't know. Um, he has a he has a little note about the word like, where he, uh, you know, says that it gets overused instead of as. We spent the evening like in the old days. He would rather you have rather you say we spent the evening as in the old days, which I don't, Man, I don't think people would say any of those. Anymore. I don't think people say those phrases anymore. 
Um, but I was I just read that and was like, oh god, he would have a heart attack with the way people talk right now with the with the use of the word like all over the place. Yeah, no, they don't. I mean, it's like it, it's a filler. I just did it. It's a it's a filler word. You also it just mean cursed. Oh, damn it. I swore again. Uh, he also doesn't care for nouns being turned into verbs. And here's one of the ones he he doesn't like. The candidate hosted 50 of his workers at a dinner. He doesn't like the word host as a verb. Okay, he's wrong about that too. Like that's one that's one of the things where language is going to evolve in that direction whether you like it or not and you just kind of have to go well, with the flow. I'm sorry, Mr. Strunk, but Shakespeare was verb and nouns all over the place like 300 years before you were around. But he wasn't doing it according to any sort of style guide. That's what's important. That's true. Mr. Strunk should go back there and make Shakespeare a lot less interesting with his... Basically, language both before and after the precise moment of his life would have made him have a stroke. Yes. (laughs) Exactly. Outside of his life, language is terrible. Because no one's reading his book. He also goes after the phrase the foreseeable future andrew okay have you ever used that phrase um occasionally there there are some stock phrases that we are very very heavily discouraged from using <laughs> things like uh only time will tell Ooh, ooh that's a good a one for one. news too yeah only yeah, time will like, tell if this gadget works it's out bad yeah so he doesn't like the foreseeable future because here's what he says a cliche and a fuzzy one how much of the future is foreseeable 10 minutes 10 years any of it by whom it is foreseeable. Seers, experts, everybody. <laughs> He's so crotchety. On the very next page, he goes after the word thrust. He says, This showy noun, suggestive of power, hinting of sex, is the darling of executives, politicos, and speech writers. Use it sparingly. Save it for a specific application. Man, he would really hate people who are all like synergizing. Oh my stuff. god. It's terrible. Like thinking outside the box. He would have a problem with a lot of idioms. Well, and that's actually a good segue into the last chapter, which is an approach to style with a list of reminders from E.B. White. Um, and one of the things that he talks about in that chapter that I found really interesting, especially in today's world, is he talks about the prevalence of marketing speak and okay. hyperbole and how you know it changes the types of words that we use on a day-to-day basis. Like when you're when you're talking to someone you're like how they how you doing and they go, "Oh, I'm awesome." You're like, "Are you literally awesome? Are you inspiring awe in the people who look upon you because you are having such a good day?" I do not or think so. Or if I say something is the worst, yeah, which is something clearly that I not have true. been trying to a habit I'm trying to break myself of lately. Yeah. Or yeah. A, a picture of a cat that fell off a shelf and you write epic fail. Like, that's just... Thanks, Internet, for your hyperbole. The Internet has pretty much ruined language for everybody forever. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that either of these men would handle the Internet very well. Um, but kind of the, the point that E.B. White drives home, he, he takes a much softer approach than strunk does it sounds like it would be hard not to yeah (laughs) and and what he's writing about is inherently a little fuzzier because he's specifically writing i think to creative writers and he's talking about developing your voice and he has a couple good rules about placing yourself in the background and write in a way that comes naturally 
and you know work from a suitable design um, so that you know exactly what you're going to say. You're not surprised. Like most things, most works of writing do not uh, benefit from stream of consciousness. You know, you want to have a good outline, all that good stuff. Right. Um, one of the spots that he actually talks about, which is really interesting, he talks about um, just sometimes the way that you phrase a sentence can be very odd, yet those are the ones that uh, stand the test of time. Like he, he quotes um, Thomas Paine and he says, these are the times that try men's souls, you know, and he has, a, he has four different variations on it that are times like these try men's souls. How trying it is to live in these times. These are trying times for men's souls. Soul-wise, these are trying times. <laughs> last one's my the favorite. Last one's so good. And he's just like, yeah, there's no particular reason that he put it that way. It's just kind of who that guy is and how his brain organized that phrase. Um, and then he just kind of has a couple other good rules, like don't affect a breezy manner, which is a weird one about like what does he what does he mean i think he he means being too kind of colloquial colloquial i'm gonna stop using that word a little too colloquial yeah a little too lax in your tone using too much jargon or um informal spellings of things jargon is always pretty bad jargon's real tough um you know avoid fancy words don't Here's a good a good axiom for you. Do not be tempted by a twenty dollar word when there is a ten center handy, ready and able. Yeah, like a, a lot of these rules, I feel like are good rules, but they should not be always mandatory. Like sometimes you use a bunch of ten cent words, and then you use a twenty dollar word to draw attention to a particular thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just it's it's yeah breaking the rules in in my case is a lot about like doing it intentionally to draw the eye, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, starting a sentence awkwardly, you know, I don't remember if it's, I think it's, uh, I think it's E.B. White. He talks about the acceptance of ending sentences with a preposition, which if I recall, I don't, I I don't know if it's ever spelled out in elements of style. He might've edited it out because that was a big deal when I was in middle school and high school. Yeah. You do not end a sentence with a preposition, jerk. But I mean, there, there are a lot of times I think with both that and with the never split an infinitive rule, mm-hmm. there are times when whether because of just the construction of specific sentences or because um, the language has kind of evolved since those rules were created, where just as way more natural to split the infinitive or to put the preposition at the end of the sentence. Yeah. Um. I think I'm out of stuff, Andrew. That's fine. That was a lot of stuff. That was a lot of stuff. And I guess you What's had the... fewer opinions than I thought you would have. I had plenty of opinions. Like we, <laughs> We've been talking for... This is as long as our episodes normally run. I think we're running between 40 and 50 minutes. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but, um... overall, it's, it's, it's an interesting read. It's not, all, it's not a difficult read. I was reading it... I didn't tell the story, I guess. I was reading it at a bar over the weekend... And the bartender came up and he was just like, hey, reading anything good? And I was like, no, not really. <laughs> and I showed him the elements <laughs> of style. And then later when he brought me my receipt, he called me Doc. And I am, huh. a, I am a doctor of no kind, no sort. Nope. Uh, 
But um, I guess my takeaway would be like if you want my writerly opinion of this book yeah. is like I'm impressed by how much of it is still true. Like how many of these rules are still repeated to you mm-hmm. as you as you write stuff. And um and yeah, I'm also struck by and this this is something that again as as I think I said earlier applies to a lot of different places, not just writing, but like the rules are there to kind of ground you and to get you started. Mm -hmm. And then as you pick up more experience with those rules and learn not just the rule, but like why the rule is enforced. And I think the, the why in a lot of the cases in this particular book is clarity. Yes. Um, Once you understand that and get more comfortable with it, you can kind of break, you can start to break the rules without, without offending the eye or without like well, making your writing bad. Yeah, and once you understand that the rule is clarity and that and that the reader is important to anything you write, um you can start seeing which rules now become dense or or create opaque writing, you know. Um, yeah. It's interesting cuz I think hating on Strunk and White is also fashionable um and pretty standard at this point. Uh, I read. Yeah, a, I think just hating on rules. Just, just hating on rules. I'm gonna be a rebel, right? And it's not gonna keep me right down. However, I want. I read uh, most of a book a couple years ago called Spunk and Bite, which is a kind of more modern style guide response. It's not really a style guide. It's just an interesting discussion on writing um, that I would recommend to people. And I wanted to read the opening of this quote from the from the Wikipedia article on uh, the elements of style. That's a guy in 2002 writing for the Cambridge Grammar of the English Language, which is a, some journal or book, I suppose. He says, The book's toxic mix of purism, atavism, and personal eccentricity is not underpinned by a proper grounding in English grammar. It is often <laughs> so misguided that the authors appear not to notice their own egregious flouting of its own rules. It's sad. So, clearly, you need to take this book with a grain of salt. Or, well, maybe they're breaking their own rules because they understand the rules and because they feel like, you know, they understand that clarity is is all and they are moving beyond these rules in their, in their writing, I guess. Yeah, I suppose so. I don't know. It's cool. That's that's like the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. <laughs> explanation for what's happening. But I'm glad I read it. You know, it's interesting. Um, that's I'm it. I'm kind of glad that I, I don't seem to be missing a whole lot. No, not no, no, no. There's some eccentric turns of phrase and how he kind of slams different types of writing. I think that the examples are probably the most interesting part of the book rather than the rules themselves. Sort of a window into what he was reading at at the time and what he was dealing with. Mm -hmm. Um, And just what writing was back then is very different than what writing is now. Like email writing is incredibly informal and does not care about this yet. Almost 100 years ago, you still would have written letters to your parents to let them know how you were doing, you know? Yeah, right. So, anyway, if you have your favorite grammar rules that you like to break, you can tweet them to us at twitter.com slash overduepod, or you can cite your favorite parts of the elements of style on facebook.com slash overduepod, or you can ask us more questions about what the book says by writing us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. And if you use the passive voice when you get in touch with us by any of those methods, we will not even read it. No, we'll just throw it away. We'll just throw it out. Or we'll just post it to Reddit. (laughs) 
Um, you can also go to our website at overduepodcast.com. Um, up there, we have links to our RSS feed where you can subscribe. Uh, we also have a link to our iTunes store. And if you want to subscribe there and rate and review us, that would, that would be really great. We always appreciate feedback, good or bad, uh, preferably good, but we'll, we'll take whatever we can get. Um, also up on our website, we have links to the books that we're reading on Amazon, not just the book we have currently read and the books we have previously read, but also the books for the next couple of weeks of, of shows that we're going to read. So if you want to keep up with us and also support the show, um, go ahead and click through those links and, and buy stuff. And I guess even if you don't end up buying those books, like click the link anyway, and then like go buy some Mad Men Blu-rays, and we still get we still get a cut of that. So like, I'm just telling you how to game the system. This is a secret between you and me. Did you not know this? I had no idea how that worked. You just no, told they me just that like we- <laughs> just like click through it and then buy pr- pretty much anything on Amazon, and we'll get like a portion. It's like so. just go buy, start buying your coffee on Amazon. But before you find your coffee on Amazon, click one of these links first. Yeah. And then And there I mean it's entirely possible that we're breaking like the terms of service by telling you this is how it works. That's probably but, true. But uh what are you gonna do, Jeff Bezos? I'd rather get a few dollars first and then have him call us up and be like, Yo, you messed up. <laughs> Guys, this isn't cool. If Jeff Bezos <laughs> could tell me that this wasn't cool personally, I would consider this a, a victory. A Pyrrhic victory, but a victory. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's all I've got. Yeah, let's get out of here. All right. I'm gonna go write some things in the passive voice. Uh, Listen, listen to us next week. Recommend us to your friends and enemies, and we will be back next week. Bye. Bye. getting better and better at those it's not it's like being good at eating breakfast or something like it's not have you seen me eat breakfast i mean, you put olive oil in your cheerios or that, whatever no i what did i put them on oatmeal on oh, my oatmeal oh that was so bad <laughs> did you do it twice though i don't think did i do it twice i don't know i thought you did it twice. i hope i didn't do it twice Maybe did I not? Did I just think I didn't appreciate it enough the first time? <laughs> You've tried to block it from your memory or something. Oh man! Don't remember the series of events anymore? Sometimes I put orange juice in my coffee by accident. Yikes! I, How's that? I did that when I had pneumonia. I was so distraught <laughs> with disease, and I was making myself some coffee. Because what better thing to do than when you're deathly sick is to like wake yourself up so you can better experience the sick. <laughs> So like I gotta have my coffee, and I was so just out of it that I just poured orange juice in my coffee, and then I was like, "Did you drink it? Like, was it good?" No, I saw it as it was going in. Like, I saw the the orange juice going in, and I was like, "Oh no, oh, I God. did this wrong. I did a bad thing. I did a bad thing. I did a bad job. It's bad."